High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. You must remember just a kid, a child of Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is the final episode of our ongoing series, Six Degrees of Song of the South. Up to this point, we've mostly discussed aspects of this film, its making, and its afterlife that, for many of us, are fairly distant history. I'm older than probably a lot of you, And almost none of the things we've previously covered in this series happened in my lifetime. But everything that's covered in today's episode happened in my lifetime. And at least one aspect of today's story might have touched your own life or your child's. Today, we are going to conclude our season by discussing Disney's successful re-releases of Song of the South in 1980 and 1986, and the extent to which the film was primed for celebration in the context of Reagan America and post-blaxploitation Hollywood. Then, 
will discuss the Walt Disney Company's decision to withdraw Song of the South from circulation, but only after ensuring that the film's characters and music would live on for generations in the form of a theme park ride, which was carefully calibrated to distance homogenized elements of Song of the South from the racial controversies of the film's past. Join us, won't you, for the concluding episode of Six Degrees of Song of the South. Disney's displacement of elements of their problematic movie into other mediums, such as Disneyland, is an example of the studio, an independent animation factory turned international mega conglomerate, taking advantage of what is known as convergence. When one company owns not only movie studios and TV networks, but also book publishing companies, software publishers, toy brands, and theme parks full of rides, restaurants, and stores, each individual property can become multiple products, and each new product can serve as advertising pointing back to the original referent. Historically, especially compared to other movie studios, Disney was way ahead of the convergence curve. Even before there were Disney feature films, Walt and co. were disseminating their characters in all kinds of other formats by placing the images of Mickey Mouse and friends on products as diverse as children's pajamas and adult umbrellas. This was a certain type of ingenuity when the Walt Disney Company was finding new ways to make money off of characters that Walt Disney had created. But when he and his studio began borrowing from other sources, such as fairy tales and literature, for their characters, and then began recycling the Disney version of these borrowed elements into new products, on some capitalistic level, it was even more genius. But the more visible the Disney versions of characters like Winnie the Pooh or Mr. Toad or Snow White became, the more the original referent faded into the background. By the 1970s, Disney had so effectively drowned out the origin of Br'er Rabbit and Friends through their transmedia recycling of elements of Song of the South that in the popular imagination, Joel Chandler Harris had all been erased as the author or even interpreter of the Uncle Remus stories. Children and even young parents conceivably knew the Br'er Rabbit stories not only solely through Disney's versions of them, but likely from versions other than Song of the South, which, as we've discussed, would go dormant for long periods of time in between re-releases. People who knew the Br'er Rabbit cartoons, the songs, or the versions of these stories from Disney-branded books or comic strips likely were much less familiar with the live-action framing story of the movie, which allowed them to look at Br'er Rabbit as a cute cartoon character, totally divorced from the problematic racial and historical content of the movie, not to mention Harris's original seizure of these stories in the first place. 
like the 1972 re-releases, the two 1980s theatrical reissues of Song of the South were wildly successful. By the 1980s, the Walt Disney brand was widely perceived as the gold standard in entertainment for children, and its products were perceived on the whole to be totally innocent fantasies and fairy tales with no political or allegorical content. This was not the case. We've discussed on this podcast the conscious political motivations behind not just Song of the South, but also Cinderella and the Three Caballeros. And then there's Bambi, which was explicitly intended to promote animal rights and environmental conservation. But to reposition these movies as fully escapist was in keeping with a level of denial and wishful fantasizing that was integral to Reagan America, a presidential administration which married a nostalgia for a white supremacist past with Hollywood production values. We heard the term post-racial a lot after the election of Barack Obama. Then, it was used as a shorthand for the fallacious argument that racism must no longer exist, and racial difference and the history of problematic whiteness must no longer matter, because Americans had shown their colorblindness by electing a black president. This terminology was actually a throwback to about 30 years earlier, when it was used by conservatives as part of the argument against affirmative action and other social programs aimed at balancing racial disparity. In the Republican argument, an argument that was inherently racist in that it demonized people of color for needing things like welfare or asking for any acknowledgement of continued imbalance, the work of balancing the playing field was supposedly finished, and urban violence of the 1970s was a sign that white people needed to start looking out for themselves again. Reaganism reframed the activism and fights for equality of the 1960s and 70s as chaos and posited Reagan and the Republican Party as the solution to restore the order of the 1950s. This rhetoric of saying, we're so proud of the racial progress we've made while enacting racism, of expressing white privilege by denying such privilege exists, should feel very familiar in the present day. The decade of the 1980s saw a decline in Hollywood films featuring mostly Black casts and Black heroes. In 1974, the peak of black exploitation, at least in terms of volume, 7% of the films released by the major studios told stories primarily about black people. That number had dropped to 2.5% by 1981. The Cosby Show may have been the number one show on TV for the second half of the decade, but the decade began with a major controversy over a 1980 TV movie called Beulah Land, which starred Leslie Ann Warren as a kindly plantation owner who, amidst other historical inaccuracies and unlikelihoods, insists that her slaves be spared the overseer's whip and teaches them how to read. 
the NAACP forcefully protested Beulah Land on the grounds that it showed slavery as a potentially pleasant, enriching experience, which undercut the very real fight for equality that was still going on. Perhaps wary of such controversies, on the big screen, Hollywood steered clear of tackling the Black experience, historically or in the present. In the interest of trying to target as many demographics as possible in each film, Black movie stars like Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy were frequently paired with white co-stars in movies that were set in largely white worlds. Meanwhile, 1980 and 1986, the two years of the decade in which Song of the South was re-released, also featured the releases of films that some saw as throwbacks to white minstrelsy. The Blues Brothers, which was one of the biggest hits of 1980, and Soul Man, which was about a white guy who pretends to be Black in order to win a Harvard Law Scholarship reserved for African Americans. Much as was the case with Song of the South, the filmmakers of Soul Man claimed they were making a movie intending to be sympathetic to the Black experience. But as the NAACP noted... This claim was hard to take seriously about a movie suggesting that not a single actual Black person was more qualified for this scholarship than a lying white guy. Soul Man was not one of the highest-grossing movies of 1986, but it wasn't a flop either. About 7.5 million people went to see it, and it was screened at the White House, ostensibly because Ron Reagan Jr., had a bit part in it. A White House spokesman said, The Reagans enjoyed the film and especially enjoyed seeing their son, Ron. It wasn't exactly Woodrow Wilson screening The Birth of a Nation at the White House and calling it history ridden in light, but it wasn't good either. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com. 
com slash remember. Be kind to your mind with guided meditations from the Meditation for Women podcast. Your mental health benefits from sleeping better, releasing anxiety, and gaining clarity, all of which are benefits of meditation. And since this is Mental Health Awareness Month, give yourself the gift of meditations. All you have to do is press play and close your eyes. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. There were protests against Song of the South in the early 1980s, and they weren't entirely fringe or drowned out by mainstream conservatism. But within this climate, those arguing against Song of the South's racism sometimes misread the room in a way that backfired. In January 1981, the Los Angeles Times published an editorial by Ron Finney, an activist and academic who edited a weekly newspaper called Black Voice. Song of the South, wrote Finney, had debased blacks for 34 years. Finney declared that the revival of the film was part of the same set of symptoms as both Ronald Reagan's recent presidential election and a rise of violence perpetrated by the KKK. But he was most concerned about the pernicious effect the film could have on white children who didn't know anything about race relations going into the movie and danced out singing zippity doo He was absolutely right to worry about this. As I've noted previously on this podcast, this was basically my experience in 1986 when my mother took me to see this movie. Finney's editorial inspired many letters to the editor of the L.A. Times, and those that the paper printed were carefully chosen to express, quote-unquote, both sides. One notable argument against Finney came from a reverend who wrote to protest that the messages children took away from Song of the South should not be a subject of worry because, quote, It was not intended as an accurate historical documentary of the pre- or antebellum South, any more than the outrageous tall tales of Picos Bill and Paul Bunyan are intended as accurate historical accounts of the settling of the West. When a revival house in Venice, California, announced a screening of the film in February 1981, A few months after the 1980 general re-release, local newspaper The Venice Beachhead called Song of the South fascist, in addition to echoing Finney's comments about Reagan and the KKK. The Venice Beachhead described Song of the South as a film, quote, in which black people are slaves, are shown to be happy working all day and singing all night, in which they are portrayed as grown children, never angry at their condition or enforced dependency or at the whites who rule them, and in which they are filled with love for those who oppress them. The lesson of the film is that life is as it should be. Any person, black or white, child or adult, who wants to change their unhappy situation and leave the plantation for a better life will always experience something worse." This is an accurate and astute assessment of Song of the South. 
But in supposedly race-blind America of 1981, to even describe white landowners as oppressors was to go too far. Never mind the fact that the word fascist had been used in the article's headline. This rhetoric was perceived as an overreaction by moderates, and conservatives smelled blood in the water. The protests against Song of the South in Los Angeles in 1981, which included an in-person action led by a black church group, led to an inaccuracy-strewn defense of the film in the L.A. Times, the same paper that, eight months earlier, had run Finney's editorial accusing the movie of debasing blacks. Now, to charge that a film about the antebellum South is biased and racist against blacks goes without saying, wrote Thomas Pleasure, who added, What film of 39 wasn't? As far as Pleasure's inaccuracies go, first of all, the antebellum South is a phrase generally agreed upon to refer to the period of Southern history and culture before the Civil War. And for Pleasure to perceive Song of the South as taking place in that period, instead of in the Reconstruction period it was supposed to be set in, bolsters the argument made by Maurice Rapf and others that Disney's design of the film deliberately confuses the question of when the movie is supposed to take place, thus inviting nostalgia for plantation slavery. Second, Song of the South was released not, as Pleasure writes, in 1939, but seven years later. On the library clipping I read of this article, someone had penciled in, It was 1946. These are easy errors to refute, but Pleasure's more infuriating argument is that Song of the South is in fact, quote, blatant in its anti-white bias because its black characters are sympathetic and its white characters are depicted as, quote, unfeeling, uptight, and downright stupid. Disney, the man and the studio, had always promoted Song of the South as a film presenting a vision of racial harmony. But suddenly in Reagan America, even the small amount of dignity Song of the South accords Uncle Remus in its depiction of the friendship between he and a white child who is technically his employer, was going too far away from a default white point of view. One of the insidious lies of this kind of conservatism and one that feels very reminiscent of certain rhetoric of the 21st century, is the notion that African Americans had received enough or even too much special treatment, and thus the work of civil rights had been not just accomplished, but overcompensated. The reading of Song of the South as a film about a colorblind protagonist fits in with this view of race, in which privileged white people can insist that they don't even see color. Of course, to hold up Song of the South as an example of utopian race blindness is to really say that you can't or are unwilling to recognize that the movie keeps black and white characters segregated geographically and by miles of social and financial stratification. Another popular argument for Song of the South in the 1980s claimed that the film was a product of its time 
which implied nostalgia for its time, as a simpler one, in which white people weren't forced to worry about race all the time, the way some people were trying to force them to do in the 1980s. As we've seen, this argument was inaccurate on almost every level, because in every time, there were people of all races who did not find Song of the South to be acceptable. In each of its releases in the 1980s, Song of the South grossed about $8 million. You might think this is not a lot of money for a movie to have made in 1980, given that the top-grossing movie of that year, The Empire Strikes Back, made $200 million. But movies you've definitely heard of also grossed about $8 million that year, including the first Mad Max film. Woody Allen's Stardust Memories made $10 million that year. Jonathan Demme's Melvin and Howard, for which Mary Steenburgen won an Oscar, only grossed $4 million in 1980. A movie that made $8 million in 1980 could have a real cultural impact. And for a movie from 1946 to do it was remarkable. One of the reasons the 1980 reissue was so profitable was thanks in part to the fact that Disney chose to put it in theaters when many school children had a three-day weekend. Thanks to the observance of Martin Luther King's birthday. When Disney re-released Song of the South for the final time, in 1986, the film's 40-year anniversary, there was less debate about its content. This time, the Los Angeles Times ran a review by animation critic Charles Solomon, who was admiring of the film's artistry and did not have much to say about its political content. He did allow that the film's black male characterizations were dated in that they were essentially, quote, passive characters who patiently endure scoldings for things that aren't their fault. Solomon's review made allowances for these characterizations based on the idea that Song of the South was a product of its time, which, again, it was not. But it wasn't until the very end of that year that the LA Times really grappled with the racial content of the movie, in an editorial by James A. Sneed. Sneed noted that the film, quote, was already outdated in 1946, and that to show it in 1986 without prologue or context was akin to ignoring, quote, four decades of racial progress. By continuing to re-release the film without comment, Sneed wrote, Disney perpetuates myths of plantation life, kind master, contented servant, pastoral harmony that had been convincingly exposed and rejected well before 1946. He also broke down the layers of white mediation that transformed the Br'er Rabbit stories from an Africa-derived oral tradition passed among slaves as a coping mechanism into entertainment for white newspaper readers and finally cartoons for children. 
This episode is brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on MUBI is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover, Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from inland Oregon who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride. Despite the basically uneventful success of the 1986 re-release, by the time Song of the South had exhausted its fifth theatrical run, Disney had made up their minds to strip the property for parts. There was no immediate announcement that Song of the South had been relegated to the Disney vault. On the contrary, Disney's public messaging focused on hyping the incredibly expensive new venue they were building, ostensibly to promote Song of the South's key song and characters. Disney was in a sensitive place circa 1987. Michael Eisner had been appointed CEO of Disney in 1984, by which point the studio had been on the decline for some time. They had passed on the chance to make Star Wars in the 70s, which, to be fair, most other studios had as well, and then spent a fortune on their own homegrown attempt at a Star Wars knockoff, The Black Hole. A number of other dark or unusual live-action features, from Tron to Something Wicked This Way Comes to Return to Oz, followed. After a hostile takeover by a shareholder... Eisner was installed as chairman and CEO, and one of his first actions was to initiate the Disney Vault concept for home video releases. This cash cow, plus the success of live-action films like Three Men and a Baby and Splash, turned Disney's fortunes around. But given the disastrous few years before the Eisner era— When the studio took a lot of risks that didn't pay off, the new management was very into risk management. Though Song of the South had survived previous controversies, Disney now saw no need to court future controversies. And so, after 1986, the movie entered the vault, never to emerge. Except in different forms. zippity doo continued to be recycled in a variety of recordings, home video releases, and even video games. The remaining elements of Song of the South that could be salvaged were spun into Splash Mountain. While everything else was going wrong for Disney in the early 1980s, The theme parks were surging, accounting for an estimated 70% of the company's total revenue. No wonder, when he took control, 
Eisner took a careful look at what was in Disneyland's pipeline. Splash Mountain actually was first conceived in 1983 by Imagineer Tony Baxter. But because of what was anticipated as a long construction process, the Disneyland team decided to first move forward with the Star Wars-themed Star Tours, which was probably a good move. Star Tours gave the team experience in taking the essence of a movie or movies, in this case the original Star Wars trilogy, and expanding the storytelling in The Ride to give theme park customers a sense of being inside the movie that was much more sophisticated than previous movie-inspired rides at Disneyland. The new Song of the South-themed ride was originally called the Zippity River Run in an attempt to isolate the most successful element of Song of the South, its Oscar-winning earworm song, while creating distance from Uncle Remus and the more controversial aspects of the movie. As we now know, Zippity Doodah should have been considered an artifact of minstrel culture, but it wasn't. The ride was planned as a marquee destination in a part of the theme park known as Bear Country because basically the only other attraction there was the Bear Country Jamboree. This sub-land in Disneyland would, with the addition of the new log ride, be renamed Critter Country. Critter Country would sit on the edge of the park bordered by Frontierland, which represented the American West of Deadwood through shooting gallery games and a gold mining-themed roller coaster, and New Orleans Square. One Disneyland book describes New Orleans Square as being, quote, authentic to the Louisiana city of the 19th century. Splash Mountain would be built basically right next to New Orleans Square's marquee attraction, the Haunted Mansion, which, as a southern colonial-style house populated by literally white ghosts of the 1800s, is problematic in its own right. Within the dream space of the past that Disneyland was already presenting, it's easy to see how a ride based on Song of the South seemed like a perfect fit, especially for that exact spot in the park. Disney theme parks have always told a version of American history that was distorted to fit a young white boy's fantasy. To this day, everything from Manifest Destiny to the Space Race is flattened out into harmless thrills and easy consumables. As one Disneyland designer put it, quote, Disney realism, sort of utopian in nature, where we carefully program out all the negative, unwanted elements and program in the positive elements. When Eisner came on board and took a look at what the Disneyland team was working on, the River Run ride was the first theme park attraction he greenlit, with one small change. He wanted to call it Splash Mountain, 
in vague reference to the Disney live-action film Splash. In that movie, Tom Hanks would sing a little bit of zippity doo This was the only connection between Splash and Splash Mountain, and it would be invisible to most riders of the ride. At a time when Disney was making most of its money from home video and theme parks, the savvy decision was made to salvage the least controversial aspects of Song of the South and funnel them into a Disneyland ride, leaving what was left of the film, the overtly racist stuff, behind. The closest Disney came to publicly acknowledging this strategy came in a Los Angeles Times article in January 1987, which reported that Disney expected the ride to inspire no controversy because it would focus only on the animated Br'er Rabbit and his animal frenemies. If building a ride out of Song of the South was part of a plan to minimize the risks associated with the film, it came at a significant financial gamble. The construction of Splash Mountain was budgeted at $80 million, which made it the most expensive attraction at Disneyland to that point. For some perspective, in 1987, $80 million was the gross of the fifth-highest-grossing film of the year, which was Moonstruck. Moonstruck's box office, adjusted for inflation, would be $177 million. The highest-grossing movie of 1987, Three Men and a Baby, cost just $11 million to make. That was a Disney movie, as were two more of the top ten grocers of the year. In 1987, Disney's movies made, and I'm not making this number up, $666 million, not adjusted for inflation. Still, even while Imagineers predicted a multi-year development process, Splash Mountain went over schedule and over budget, due in part to a third kind of risk. The ride's big drop had to be redesigned at the last minute over safety concerns. After a crash test dummy riding a nearly final version of the log ride was decapitated on the big drop. This was somehow not the most macabre story that helps to explain how Splash Mountain was put together. The ride features many animatronics that have nothing to do with Song of the South, most of which are singing birds that were recycled from a shuttered Disneyland attraction called America Sings. America Sings closed in 1988, 14 years after an 18-year-old Disneyland worker named Deborah Stone was crushed to death between one of the ride's moving walls and a stationary wall during just the second week the ride was in operation. Fellow workers heard her screaming, but most thought the noise was part of the ride until a park patron complained. America Sings closed temporarily, then reopened, but let's just say it never became one of the park's most beloved attractions. And eventually, most of its animatronics were reconscripted into Song of the South. Splash Mountain, which finally opened in 1989, 
is an example of what is called a dark ride because it is carved out of a series of dark rooms. To get to the actual logs that you ride, you wind on foot through a waiting area in which you see Splash Mountain's only remaining vestiges of Uncle Remus in the form of a few of the characters' aphorisms, which appear in text on walls. One of these aphorisms is, The critters, they were closer to the folks, and the folks, they was closer to the critters. And if you'll excuse me for saying so, twas better all around. This is such a bizarre thing to throw up on a wall out of context, because for anyone who's seen the movie, and certainly many visitors to Disneyland had seen the movie, when the ride first opened there in 1989, it's memorable as a line from Song of the South spoken by a former slave who was romanticizing the past. It's all the stranger because, otherwise, the historically problematic live-action framing story of the film has been completely written out of the ride. Visitors spend much more time in line for Splash Mountain than they do on Splash Mountain. Wait times to board the logs can stretch to an hour or more, and the ride itself is fast-moving and lasts about nine minutes. So an adult, or anyone who can read, has much more time to contemplate the uncredited words of Remus than they do the story of the interior of the ride. A ride like Splash Mountain is as carefully storyboarded by Disney artists as any movie. And yet, this particular ride doesn't exactly have a story per se. Its reason to exist is the plume-drop climax. And all throughout, it reduces the narrative that it does borrow from Song of the South to similarly quick rushes of spectacle. It's basically a tour through Br'er Rabbit's Briar Patch and its surrounding countryside, broken up by a few small drops and building to the major final drop with a little bit of conversation about, as one animatronic sings, what Br'er Rabbit can do to avoid becoming rabbit stew. Like many Disneyland rides, there are disembodied voices, sort of narrating the experience, as well as talking and singing animatronics. The voices are cartoonishly Southern, but are generally not the overt minstrel stereotypes of the movie. We see images of the movie out of context, such as Br'er Bear getting caught in the trap meant for Br'er Rabbit. There are also a lot of things that are not in the movie, such as psychedelic toadstools and the very large singing white birds recycled from America Sings. In the home stretch of the ride, after the big plunge into the laughing place, which echoes Br'er Rabbit's flying leap into the briar patch in the movie, Zippity-Doo-Dah finally plays, and we seem to have changed locations to the Mississippi River, where birds sing on a riverboat called the Zippity Lady, and Br'er Fox, apparently getting his just desserts for trying to cook our hero, hangs precariously above an alligator's mouth. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else, and they ask me how I feel about it, and then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel, and a lot of the time my answer is nope, because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on, or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes. But therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Y-M-R-T. Aside from totally writing out Uncle Remus and the white power structure of the plantation, Splash Mountain's biggest narrative deviation from Song of the South has to do with the story of Br'er Fox tempting Br'er Rabbit with the Tar Baby. This story is depicted in the ride, but it's rewritten to replace the Tar Baby with a pot of honey. This rewrite implicitly acknowledges the unacceptability of the minstrel-derived imagery of the original movie. It also suggests that in constructing Splash Mountain, Disney's executives and Imagineers were looking towards a future in which Disneyland visitors would not know the Tar Baby ever existed in this scene because they would have never seen the movie. You could argue that this instance of whitewashing Song of the South for the purposes of Splash Mountain is a good thing. Because even if Disney is trying to scrub away a problematic part of their past, at least they're not perpetuating a character that calls to mind blackface minstrelsy. But for all of its problems, Song of the South was a movie that starred a black man. And Splash Mountain, the ride based on that movie, doesn't show blackness at all. This calls to mind how Hollywood responded to calls from the NAACP for more diversity in the 1940s. Just as stalwarts like Hattie McDaniel feared they would, instead of creating more and more substantial roles for black actors, the studios, afraid of being called racist for casting these performers as mammy maids and step-and-fetch-it idiots, didn't cast black performers at all. In the supposedly post-racial America of the late Reagan administration, during which Splash Mountain was being developed, 
to ignore race was to reinforce whiteness as the standard and non-whiteness as the deviation. At this point, does it surprise you at all that one of the ways Disney promoted Splash Mountain was by concocting a music video featuring this zippity doodah rap remix, featuring a multicultural cast of dancers supporting a lead white male rap lip syncer? What was surprising in 1989 was not the now cringeworthy ways in which Splash Mountain was promoted, but the fact that Splash Mountain would not serve as promotion for anything outside of itself. In 1987, when the construction of Splash Mountain was announced in the LA Times, Disney called the ride, quote, a good marketing tool for the movie, which they promised would be re-released when the log ride opened. But it never was. The movie itself would never be legally commercially available in the United States again. Because the launch of Splash Mountain coincides with Disney essentially removing Song of the South from circulation, the ride doesn't promote the movie so much as usurp it. This is especially significant given that the ride deletes Uncle Remus, the plantation framing story, and replaces the tar baby with a pot of honey. This salvage job is a tacit acknowledgement that the movie in its original form is unsaleable. But Disney's effort to replace the movie with the ride hasn't sated some Song of the South fans. In 2003, the LA Times ran a lengthy story about the debate over whether the film should be made available to paying customers. Actually, the story itself did not offer much debate or dialogue. Writer Donald Liebenson quoted five supporters of the film, including Leonard Maltin, 86-year-old actress Ruth Warwick, who had played Johnny's mother nearly 60 years earlier, and two men, then in their 20s, who ran websites peddling Song of the South memorabilia and encouraging its fandom. Only one dissenting voice was heard, and it was that of academic Todd Boyd. The subtext of this piece is clearly the people versus the egghead, and in George W. Bush's America, the egghead's point of view was token and not taken seriously. The websites named in that Song of the South story still exist, and supporters of the film have continued over the past decade and a half to vocally demand a re-release on those sites and other forums, often using the language of what we now call the alt-right 
to disparage those who have raised concerns about the movie. Sometimes the argument is that we've all become too PC. Sometimes it's that libtards are trying to suppress history. Never mind that the earlier conservative argument in favor of Song of the South was that it wasn't trying to be a historically accurate documentary. Of course, the nostalgia for Song of the South seems to be less about recapturing actual history and more about recapturing a lost past in which white people weren't asked to confront or apologize for our privilege. The idea that preserving Song of the South would become a cause is the logical outcome of Disney's handling of it over the past 33 years. The studio has made elements of the movie pervasive, while also ensuring the actual movie's scarcity, thus enhancing its cult and its appeal as a fetish object. Though Disney has insisted as recently as 2019 that they will not make Song of the South commercially available, in that they continue to make money off of things like Zippity Doodah and Splash Mountain, they're continuing to have it both ways. And if they're speaking to one political side in not releasing the movie, it's with a wink to the other side, to the people who share clips of the movie freely on YouTube and celebrate it on message boards, and by extension, shore up nostalgia for a supposedly lost era, which only helps a company with a library as deep as Disney's make money. In essence, Disney is saying that there are very good customers on both sides. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was produced, written, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Today's episode was edited by Andy Christens. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes, which include lists of all of our sources, information about music, and much more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. You can also support the show on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash Karina Longworth. You can subscribe on Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And here's some big news. After five years of You Must Remember This, we're finally selling merch. Go to podswag.com slash remember now to find You Must Remember This t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs, all of which are perfect for holiday season gifts. We'll be adding more items to the store in the future, including signed copies of my books. That's podswag.com slash remember. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>